welcome to the International Buzz podcast by WordBee. WordBee is the famous TMS and CAT tool, so check that out if you are keen. We are missing my co-host, Tanya Faulkner, today. So it's just going to be uh, me. And we're sitting down today with Ludmila Golovin from Masterword. Ludmila founded Masterword in 1993. Now, Ludmila, you'll have to correct me if I get something off here, but I think it was 1993, right? It is. Thank you. It's a long time ago. Cool. Cool. Well, uh, you've done pretty well. So um, MasterWord focuses on localization and interpretation and is active in several different fields, including technical translation across different sectors, as well as medical translation and uh, a bunch of other things. MasterWord was listed in the NIMSI Top 100 LSPs at number 70 for 2018, right? So... Business aside, uh, we've got a serious topic to cover today. We'll be talking about uh, interpretation and how interpreting, like the profession, is difficult in terms of dealing with trauma. Ludmila has presented on this subject uh, with several different audiences. So uh, welcome to International Buzz, Mila, and uh, let's get started. So it's a high-stress profession, interpretation. So why don't we start by talking about how you first became interested in the subject of, of interpreting and the trauma that interpreters experience. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me today. And uh, our goal is to raise awareness about this issue nationally and internationally. Actually, I started as an interpreter back in 1987. Uh, that's my first interpreting assignment. And then I continued interpreting and uh, got certified uh, or, or tested and started working as an interpreter for the U.S. State Department. I also worked as a simultaneous interpreter. Initially, did a lot of assignments in the oil and gas industry and started interpreting in the medical field in the uh, mid-90s. Uh, so I experienced what's called vicarious trauma firsthand. And back in 2006, found myself... Um, pretty much in the self-help section, thinking that I'm going crazy because I cannot stop thinking about what happened or I get sick to my stomach during an assignment. And uh, years later, you know, after a lot of research, I started actively talking about the subject. So it's important to know that the first study that looked at what happens to interpreters was actually undertaken by IEC, Association of International Conference Interpreters, back in 2001. And they looked at psychological, physiological, physical, and performance factors or effects that uh, interpreters experience while they're interpreting. And they identified that Physiologically, interpreters are always in a, not the best environment. They're sitting in a cramped booth with bad lighting, bad air circulation many times. They are having physical effects either because they're sitting in a booth or they can't move. Psychological effects because of stress or overreaction of what they're interpreting. And then performance effects because you have Textual difficulties, fast speakers, accents, uh, difficult abbreviations. They've actually, that study placed interpreters in one of the most high-stress professions worldwide in the same level of stress as first respondents, as uh, fighters in the front lines, as pilots, as neurosurgeons. So interpreters actually do really experience a lot of stress while they're interpreting. In addition to right. that, when interpreters work in uh, settings uh, like mental health or court or legal or with refugees, or when translators are constantly translating reports on, let's say, on torture or, or what's happening with the Myanmar uh, crisis right now, or any type of uh, difficult uh, report about uh, rape investigation, they actually do experience additional levels of stress and additional levels of trauma. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to note that uh, studies show that every single person, 100% of the people exposed to trauma are affected by that trauma. And about 60 to 70% of the people end up bouncing back 
Mm -hmm. uh, but 30 to 40 percent of the people don't. So what right. happens to the interpreters when that's basically part of our eight to five job and when we're constantly exposed to uh, different levels of other people's trauma? And we tend to fall more into the 30 to 40 percent of the group that ends up not recovering. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, kind of put me on, on the journey of uh, making sure that I educate or we educate uh, professionals in our field on, on how to deal with that. Right, right. You know, it's uh, just looking at the timeline, you said that the, the first major study about vicarious trauma with interpreters was in 2001. I don't know, it's interesting because mental health subjects were taboo for so long. And like, if you were, you know, an interpreter prior to 2001, a lot of interpreters like yourself as well, probably felt like, you know, like you said, like you were going crazy, or you didn't understand why, why you were feeling some way or Maybe you couldn't talk about it. So uh, do you think that we're making progress with these things in terms of mental health issues in general, in, in your experience? I think a lot of progress has been made. A lot of studies came out for sign language interpreters. Some of the studies are coming out for spoken language interpreters. And there is, in general, a lot more awareness being brought up into this field. And it's important that we actually form support groups and we talk about it and we find solutions. Right, right. So what's the difference then between like the vicarious trauma and, for example, PTSD or, or um, even burnout? Yeah, it's actually uh, an interesting question. I'm glad you're asking me that. So burnout, uh, there are different stages of burnout that has been identified. We all start with enthusiasm and very excited about maybe a particular assignment or a particular subject or just generally working in the field. And then we end up, if we're exposed to certain levels of stress, we end up experiencing stagnation, frustration, and then actually it can turn into apathy. Mm -hmm. And apathy is, is not such a bad thing. It's, uh, well, what is a personal level, you may think, you know, I just don't care anymore. In reality, it's your body kicking in the defense coping mechanism that basically makes you withdraw and detach from what you're working on. It's actually a defense mechanism that your body shows and allows, protects you from what you're experiencing. And burnout is, happens over time, and burnout can be helped with time off or just starting working in a different work environment. Vicarious mm -hmm. trauma is different. Vicarious trauma is like an emotional residue, an exposure to clients' trauma, their pain, their fear, that actually changes you on a much deeper level. You will end up being angry, irritated. You may lose sleep. You'll be feeling trapped by your work. You may end up feeling hopeless. Or you may actually find yourself that your whole belief about the world has changed. <laughs> uh, an example, if you are interpreting in the field or translating in the field of human trafficking or sex trafficking or organ harvesting, and you're seeing that people are being killed or uh, kids are being used in some horrific ways, you actually will find yourself that you're not able to stop thinking about it. Your behavior will be affected. You will think that the world is a horrible place to live and your interpersonal communications will be affected. And the combination of burnout and vicarious trauma is called compassion fatigue. And compassion fatigue can also be described as you basically feeling like you have nothing left to give. It's psychological and social exhaustion and dysfunction that affects you on a physical level. Mm -hmm. Now, PTSD is a little bit different. During PTSD, and in order to fully understand what happens to us, we need to understand how we process information. When exposed to stress, our first reaction happens in our amygdala. That's a flight or fight syndrome that gets activated. And mm -hmm. it's important. Now, that's a very natural reaction to stress. You determine, your body determines on a subconscious level if you're going to run away from the dinosaur, if you're going to engage in a fight with a dinosaur and kind of address the situation. And at the same time, you process your logical and cognitive thoughts in your prefrontal cortex 
and your memories are happening in a process in your hippocampus. So PTSD is actually when a particular emotional trigger affected you so deeply that that memory becomes your reality, and you end up being stuck between the, uh, the, the emotional processing gets stuck between your hippocampus and your amygdala, and so anything, your emotional trigger becomes like immediate, your today's reality all of a sudden. So a lot of people who are in combat end up experiencing PTSD. While vicarious trauma causes depression and deeper levels of inability or deep levels of inability to process information. So there are physiological differences between the levels of trauma. And one of the things I want to point out is because of how we are built and the concept, this whole concept of human evolution, the way we respond to stress and the way stress affects us, it actually affects us on the DNA level. So when Mm. you experience stress, your DNA gets affected because we're programmed to learn biologically and evolve biologically. If we see a certain level of stress or, you know, we're programmed to process different ways. And that DNA and that change actually gets passed to future generations. And the question is not whether it gets passed or not. The question is, does it get passed to the next five generations or 14 generations? So there's some research that shows that that stress affects us incredibly deeply. And if we don't know how to cope with it, we can actually get sick from that stress. Wow. Yeah, that's super interesting. Oh, I've accumulated a bunch of questions. I have a question about apathy, and then I have a question about the stress DNA. Let's go with apathy. So, like, the apathy, um, you mentioned that it's a defense coping mechanism. That was for vicarious trauma, right? That is for all human beings. All human beings, right. to some, but say you you are constantly interpreting in court and you have one case after another of child abuse going in front of you. Mm-hmm. You may react very strongly to the first few cases, but then case number 127, you're no longer reacting. You feel like you've shut down. You're no right. longer reacting to the human trauma in front of you. And, and then uh, do, do people like that find themselves then like in a pattern of apathy where they, be, they become apathetic about their own personal lives or things that are going on in their life outside of work? Bring it into your personal life, you end up not being able to, to cope with uh, or, well, some people carry the feelings of guilt, end up uh, feeling, to give you another example, many times when you're interpreting assignment, interpreters don't just we, we don't just witness the trauma. We actually channel the trauma mm-hmm. because having to translate or take a linguistic concept from one language to another language, we have to think on our feet and find a linguistic equivalent. We build so-called semantic bridges between different cultures. Many concepts don't exist in another mm-hmm. culture. So you're thinking about how do you convey that meaning? How do you convey that communication into another language? Mm-hmm. Another thing, have to say it in the first person, I have been raped, I am going to die. And uh, you're processing that, so you're channeling information. Mm -hmm. And if you're a translator and you're translating that, you're also taking that information in kinesthetically and visually. Mm -hmm. So processing that information in many, many ways. And as human beings, we process information through our eyes, through our ears, right, through all through our senses. So when your senses are affected, when you are conveying and thinking about how to take that information and concept from one language to another, it has a very deep residue on your physical body. Mm-hmm. And then it's too long term if you don't know how to cope with it. Wow. Yeah. So how then do interpreters process information in terms of like what's going on in their minds at the moment they're interpreting? So that's another interesting question. So to understand that, let's look at how do we as human beings process information. We are hit with 400 billion bits of information every second. Every Mm -hmm. second we're receiving 400 billion bits of information. We are consciously aware of only 2000 bits of information at any moment. And we're able to process anywhere from 134 to 256 bits of information. So that means that every single person will have a different experience in any given setting. 
We process information based on our internal dimensions, our age, our sex, our physical ability, external dimensions, such as our income, our educational levels, our marital status, and then organizational dimensions. We, an intern that just started an assignment, have we been in this job for the last 30 years? Are we the manager or are we a CFO? And then we filter that information. We delete, distort, and generalize it based on our values, our beliefs, and our memories. For example, if you had a negative encounter with a dog when you were a child, every dog will look to you as a threat. Or some people may look at a bottle of water and see it as a hydration source, and another person may look at it and say, oh, that's pollution. It's a plastic bottle that's that's sitting on, on my desk. Mm-hmm. So we will put this information differently, and because of that, we will also react to that information, and, and we'll have different stress levels when we react to that information. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So the interpreter is having a difficult experience, right? There's a lot of things going on in their mind when they are doing the interpretation and they can have these effects that linger. So like how then can, for example, an LSP like MasterWord or even interpreters themselves, like how can they deal with the vicarious trauma? What are some of the strategies for that? Okay, so as an LSP, there'll be different strategies for if you're an LSP versus if you are an interpreter versus if you're a translator. As an LSP, it's important that we understand this is what language professionals experience, right? And that we allow for a network of support and that we listen to our interpreters. And I will be, I'll mention some of the additional helpful tools that we, we can do, use and make available for interpreters. For interpreters themselves, I would like to go through like what interpreters can do before, during, and after an assignment. And a lot of this can also be applicable for the translators. Before we go into that, I want to bring one additional point, that in an interpreting assignment from the interaction perspective, the interpreter is many times the central point of communication. Mm-hmm. Many times high-stress environment, the let's say you're in a hospital and somebody's going to be disconnected from life support. The family does not see the medical team. They only see the interpreter that is communicating to them in their language in that high-stress environment is the main point of communication. And the medical team sees the interpreter, especially if the family does not agree or there's some kind of disagreement going on. And I have met many interpreters that years later are still carrying the guilt of whether the decision was made to disconnect somebody from life support, they feel maybe they could have helped save that life, or whether the decision was made to prolong somebody on life support, and they feel guilty that that person ended up extra few weeks, or the child ended up extra few weeks on life support and ended up suffering, right. and they caused that suffering. So they end up carrying strong feelings of guilt, and right. uh, they're not going anywhere. So that's another challenge. I suppose it's kind of the same if they had to like break bad news to someone as well, right? Like uh, someone's very ill and they're they're breaking the news to them. And, the, you know, the doctor knows the whole background of the case. They know the study. They looked at the radiology report. They talked with the other doctors. But the I suppose the interpreter, you know, doesn't have that background. And suddenly there they are telling someone that they have a terminal disease, for example. It must be impossible to deal with. And some of the things that interpreters have shared in the past is comments like, I can walk away from it, but I cannot to some extent because I've got that knowledge. You cannot unsee what you have seen. Or in a mental health setting, it's not that I'm feeling sorry for them and those are quotes, it's that I'm becoming them. Mm -hmm. You know, after you interpret for so many times that I don't want to live anymore or I want to kill myself for a mental care patient, you end up going home and you feel like you're becoming that person that you've been interpreting for. Right, right. It must be such a strange feeling. No wonder you felt like you were going crazy in the in the early 90s there. Like, it sounds, it's a strange form of trauma to have, really. The challenge is that many people think that it's just happening to you. It's not happening to anybody else. And then people are afraid to share it. Mm -hmm. I'm the only one who's reacting this way. And let's kind of not talk about it because I don't know what to do about it. 
So the important thing is to know that it's probably happening to others mm. and we want to talk about it. Right, right. And maybe acknowledging that it's a little bit special too, right? Because like people, I suppose they're like, yeah, you know, uh, I also had a terrible bad day last week. and it, But it's not the same thing as, as having a bad thing happen to you than to vicariously be assimilating someone else's trauma. I think it's different is what we're saying, right? Well, it's different and the same because you end up experiencing that trauma on many, right. many levels. You actually end up carrying it with you. You actually end up carrying the pain of that person yeah. with you. And so I have done a lot of studying in the area, and I've put together some tools that can help interpreters protect themselves from the effect of vicarious trauma. And I think the translators can use it as well. So there are things that you can do before an assignment. So let's say you're about to sit down and start a very challenging translation project, translating a, a torture report or reports from, again, victims coming from uh, countries where they experienced genocide or a medical document or a court document of sorts, or you're about to go into interpreting assignment. So the first thing that you can do is before the assignment, you can sort of set a mental boundary and you can say that I'm going to witness something potentially highly stressful. And I want to remember that I am witnessing that I'm not in that. And to kind of create, in a way, a separation from what is about to happen. To remind yourself that you're not your emotions. You will be happy. You will be sad. You will experience emotions. But you're not your emotions. And you're basically walking into an assignment or about to undertake an assignment. And then at some point it will be over to just create that mental reminder. When you're in the middle of an assignment... You start experiencing it. Most of the interpreters will know, and most of the time you will know that you're experiencing something because you'll have a strong physical reaction. People have a knot in their stomach or experience uh, like a flash of uh, heat or some kind of a physical reaction, and you know that you're reacting to what's going on. That physical reaction is actually your body, your amygdala, processing the information and reacting to stress. And a bunch of chemicals are being generated in your body to the response to what you're seeing. So the immediate thing that you can do as an interpreter, whether you're in a booth or whether you're standing there and interpreting, or even as a translator, is recognize and name the emotion. And you can do that without stopping and without, inter uh, you can do it while you're still interpreting. So if inside your head you say, I'm angry, I'm sick, I'm disgusted, and it's important to say it, I am, I am experiencing stress, I'm about to throw up, I'm about to cry. What happens is you are moving the processing of the data from your amygdala to your prefrontal cortex. Studies show, there was a study when labeling an emotion, that's it, by Tom Baleo in 2013 and many other studies that show that reduces sometimes by as much as 50% the physical effect that that emotion will have on your body because you just moved it from your fight or flight to prefrontal cortex, and so you're no longer responding to it by, you know, subconscious instinct. You're now responding to it consciously. Mm. So that is an incredibly important step in any situation when you're stressed. You can say, my hands are shaking. As long as in your mind you're naming what is happening to you, that changes your processing and that reduces your level of stress. Right, right. So, I, and I guess it's worthwhile for the interpreter to practice these yes. I, I am statements ahead of time because in the moment you might forget, right? Right. It's very important. And we'll be sharing the steps. We have a link where you can download the steps, the useful steps for the interpreter or translator. The second step that you can do or you want to do is you want to change your focus because you want to change the focus from what's causing your trauma in that moment. You want to change it to something else. And you can change your focus by taking notes, by rubbing your hands, by moving your feet. And by the way, if you're standing and you are able to 
kind of balance yourself from right to left food, you're activating interchangeably your right brain and your left brain, and that actually helps balance you physically and it helps balance your processing of information and of data. So you want to move your feet, balance yourself from right foot to left foot, and then you want to move your big toe. I find it's the most effective way of changing your focus is moving your big toe. I'm actually going to ask you, Robert, right now to kind of move your big toe and feel it. Mm, I, I was already starting to move my big toe when, as soon as you said moving the big toe. It is that most of the time we are not aware yeah. that we have a big toe. We forgot that we even have feet. Yeah. And your big toe, it takes a mental effort to go, oh, I have a big toe. Let me move a big toe. Let me sense a big toe. Mm-hmm. And so really is an effective way of changing your focus from, let's say, a very emotional scene in a mental health setting to you just named your emotion, I'm scared, or I'm just, and you moved your big toe and you reminded yourself, okay, I'm actually not in that situation, I'm outside of the situation, I'm an interpreter. Right, right. Yeah, actually, like at my... I don't know if it's just like the circumstance or whatever, but my toe feels it's like, I don't know, like 10 kilometers away from my head right now. (laughs) But like, so are they, but are they supposed to move the toe while they're interpreting at the same time? Guess what? You can do that and nobody will notice that in your shoe, you moved your big toe. Most of the people rub their hands when they're nervous anyway, and we seem to be taking notes anyway, but moving your toe is an effective tool that you can use whether you're standing up or sitting down and nobody will know that you're doing it and at that point you're kind of coming back to your senses and calming down your reaction then that i highly recommend we do actually from neuro-linguistic programming and as a step that will teach you how to distance yourself from the emotion and it's called putting yourself on the third position removed and that step requires practicing. And when I do the seminar face-to-face, I actually ask people to stand up and kind of become aware of where they're at. So if people listening to this podcast are sitting or standing, they can I recommend that you stand up and you become fully aware of like where you're standing. If you're standing in front of your computer or you're standing in front of your desk. And then this is like you being on stage. You're the center stage. And most of the time, is a standard stage you're most likely interpreting in that moment. If you take two steps back, and the idea is to learn how to do it in your head, so when you're interpreting, you then give yourself sort of a command. You move your big toe, now put yourself to a third position removed. But you need to physically practice it a few times before you're able to do it in your mind. So you take two steps back, and then you're looking at that place where you were standing, like you are sitting in the first row of a movie theater or of a theater, and you used to be on stage, now you're in row one, and you're looking at yourself on stage. Oh, you're that guy on stage, and you were the guy interpreting and being really stressed and really reacting to that situation. Now you're observing yourself. Mm -hmm. If you do two steps back, you're actually going to notice a physical separation that you're experiencing internally. Mm -hmm. Experience that. Take two more steps back, like you're in the back of the theater, looking at yourself sitting in the first row, looking at yourself looking on stage. That is something that, if practiced enough times at home, you are able, in the middle of an assignment, to go third position removed. I'm now at the door of the room. I'm now at the door of the courtroom, looking at myself, looking at myself interpreting. And that creates a distance from the emotion that creates sort of a wall, a separation that you're able to build around yourself for self-preservation in that moment. Hmm. So, Yeah, that's really hard because I, as you're describing it, you know, so we went from the toe to this one and you're describing it and I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm trying to do it, just recording this podcast. But no matter what I do, I'm still sitting here recording the podcast. So it, it must be difficult to do. So so pretend right now that you're sitting here recording the podcast, Uh visualize standing at the door, looking at yourself recording the podcast. Yeah. You can close your eyes and visualize yourself sitting at the, being at the door, watching yourself recording that podcast. Yeah, I can kind of see it, I guess. It feels, yeah. It feels a little bit moved, right? Yeah, it feels less. 
it feels less. Mm-hmm. If you're not able to do all the three stages, just there's always a door in every room. Right, right. And if there is an outside, if you're interpreting somewhere outside, there is always some kind of a marker you can put yourself in a distance. So visualize watching yourself doing what you're doing. And actually tell us how it feels right now. How do you feel when you're doing that? So I'm visualizing myself recording the podcast from the door. And and I'm also talking at the same time. And it feels less. And if I, let's see here. You just removed yourself from the stage and put yourself in the audience. Yeah. So you want to practice it enough times at home or outside of the interpreting assignment to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, The important things are to just do the naming the emotion and then changing focus. Hey. As you know, we like to keep things mostly non-commercial around here, and we like to just stick to interviewing the guests about fascinating subjects. But we would like to take a moment to mention a little bit about WordBee Translator. WordBee Translator is the translation management system developed by WordBee over the last 10 years. So we are celebrating 10 years now. It's all in one system, so you can manage projects. It also has linguistic tools. It has tools for finance, business analytics, and it's been around for 10 years, so it does pretty much anything you want. Before working for WordBee, I also used WordBee Translator. One of my favorite things about it was actually the invoicing because it made it really easy to manage supplier invoices, create them, and just not have to deal too much with the financial side of things. But other customers appreciate other things, like for example, it's a native cloud technology, so it's really collaborative. You know, you can keep track of what's going on in there at uh, any, any moment in your project. It's easy to set up different job assignment methods. You know, you can check your stats at any time. You can see how your project managers are performing. You can see how your translators are doing. And yeah, it does pretty much everything you want. It ends up fitting your organization like a glove, as we say. So that was just a word about Wordby Translator. Now, without further ado, back to the podcast. Yeah, all of the things you mentioned seem to work. And like the, this exercise we just did, it, I mean, you feel different. It, it changes the way you feel, you know, it really does. It, it so, will create that mm-hmm. level of protection and that uh, it will lessen the effect of the information that you're receiving, the information that's flowing through you. It basically creates a very healthy disassociation in that moment. Right, right. So then what are the remaining strategies? So I guess we've covered, is that all of the things they do during the, the job? There or? are things that you want to do. And one of the next step, step four, is called reset. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, you know, it's, it says take a deep breath, stand straight, look up, and remind yourself that you're not your emotions. You know, well, everybody tells you to breathe. Why do you want to breathe? Okay. It's actually important to take a deep breath because when you're having a reaction, the fight or flight reaction, one of the things that happen is if you have an experiencing anxiety, you're having an excess production of CO2 in your body that's generated, that's your body making sure that you do outrun the dinosaur or the cyber tiger or whomever else is chasing you. And by the way, the guy that didn't have that reaction is not your ancestor, right? Most likely got eaten by whomever was predator that, that uh, did that. So it's a natural thing that we all do. Overproduction of CO2. How do you reduce the level of CO2? Mm-hmm. You take oxygen. How do you intake oxygen through your breath? So by taking in a deep breath in that moment, you're actually saturating your body with oxygen. And we can try that. And you're reducing that chemical reaction. Standing straight or straightening your shoulders while you're sitting down allows for that oxygen to come in and saturate you better, right? Mm -hmm. Looking up is an important part because if you're experiencing a very deep, sad emotion, if you look up, you're not able to frown. If you look down, Mm -hmm. you're not able to smile. So by looking up, and your physical body, your body language, effect, your mental state affects your body language, but your body language affects your mental state. 
So by mm-hmm. looking up, you're taking more oxygen and you suddenly put yourself in a smiling position or at least in a position where your face is not frowning, you're not getting ready to, to cry. And then remind yourself that you're not your emotions. You are processing those 4 billion bits of information where you're consciously aware of 2,000 bits and you're processing certain bits of information, but everybody else in the room is having a, a different experience. And that victim may be actually very happy because that person may be getting help for the first time. Right. And you're having a horrible reaction that may be an actually uh, an amazing moment for that person because they may be coming out of an incredibly painful situation, you know, or it may people may be coming to a resolution or closure and, and your reaction is not necessarily theirs. Right, right. Yeah, you're not having the, the closure. You're, you're just having the trauma. And as a last step, very important to get back and be present and be in the moment. About 46.9% of the time, our mind is somewhere else, and we're not where we are. So we're making a grocery list. We're thinking that we're putting our gas in our car, and in a, a moment of the intense assignment, we're going, oh, my God, what could happen to my kids? It happened to me. It happened to my grandmother. My great-uncle was tortured in, in the war as well. So your mind goes all over the place. You're actually going to help yourself and help your mental health by just going and being present in this assignment and going, I'm interpreting. This is the word. This is another word. How do I convey the information with the utmost accuracy? And just literally focusing on the grammatical structures, on the Mm -hmm. linguistics that you're trying to convey. By doing those five steps, you're going to be able to minimize significantly the effects of trauma or stress that you're experiencing, and you're going to be able to put yourself into the 60 or 70% of the people that after witnessing the trauma recover and bounce back, as opposed to the other percentage that ends up being stuck and and physically affected by it. Wow. So is, is this stuff that most interpreters are learning now in the university as well? Like, is it part of their education? I am not aware of this being taught in universities. I've actually, for the past year and a half, well, for the past five years, we've been doing events here in Texas, broadcasting them. But for the past year and a half, I've been on a mission, talking to as many organizations as possible and actually teaching classes at universities and teaching classes at different hospitals volunteering my time to raise awareness and make sure that as a profession, this takes um, on and uh, it is being taught and it is being part of our curriculum. Cool, cool. Well, congratulations for doing that and helping people with that. So then how do you do things as a company then? So when you're, when you're hiring interpreters or translators and you're sending them into a place that could be a bad place, how do you help them out? Well, I think that is a very good question again. And we look at what can we do after the assignment, right? And after mm-hmm. this, we can do a number of things. First of all, many interpreters, many translators think that they are not able to talk about the assignment because they'll either be breaking confidentiality or HIPAA or some other rules. But what's important to know is that you actually can talk about what happened without breaking any of the confidentiality rules, if you talk about what happened to you, as opposed to what happened in the assignment or in the encounter. And we learned from chaplains who deal, and and you know chaplains are never called during happy moments, they're normally called Mm during dramatic moments, and they have a concept of so-called debrief partner. And you form an, an agreement with your co-worker or many co- or multiple co-workers, and you say, I want you to be my debrief partner. And what that means is that when I call you and I say, Robert, can you be my debrief partner, is you're going to set a time and you say, you know, okay, so for the next 30 minutes, not for the next 50 hours, but for the next 30 minutes, you're just going to listen to me and do active listening. You're not going to say you understand. You're not going to claim to relate. You're not going to offer advice, none of that. You're just going to let me talk about what happened to me. And that allows for more emotions to be moved from amygdala to the prefrontal cortex, and that will allow me to process more information. 
And it's important that as interpreters, as language professionals, we don't talk about the person. We don't name the person. We only talk about what happened to us. And what happened to us, we can describe in a lot of detail, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, as a company, as an organization, we can set up a system, a network of saying, let's set up debrief partners. Let's set up that time. Let's set up that network for the language professionals. Mm -hmm. So another important thing is that many times language professionals feel that they're not able to say no to the next assignment. So as companies, it's important that we listen to interpreters and we listen to them carefully. And if they tell us that they just had a very tough assignment and they're not able to go to a trauma center or they're not able to go to a mental health setting, that we listen to them and we say, okay, can you go to a family courtroom setting instead or can you go to a courtroom set, a corporate discussion instead? Uh, there's a very good book by William Uri, The Power of a Positive No, that mm -hmm. I recommend to language professionals to read because it teaches us how to say no in a positive way. Like, um, for example, Robert, I really appreciate our collaboration and I really enjoy working with you. But I just had a very difficult experience uh, interpreting during the end of life setting. And uh, I would appreciate if uh, for the next couple of weeks I end up going to a different part of the hospital. I'm not able to deal with end-of-life settings for, for a little bit, and I'll let you know when I can. Um, right. That doesn't necessarily terminate our relationship. That doesn't necessarily put our relationship at risk. That, in a very authentic way, communicates the fact that I just need a mental break as an interpreter. So... And I find myself very many times that I was afraid to say no to an assignment going, oh, my God, what if I don't get the next assignment? Mm -hmm. So um, I really recommend, again, interpreters to read the book, The Power of a Positive No, um, mm -hmm. and, and translators as well, and learn how to communicate asserting your mental well-being in a way. And again, as a company, we have a responsibility to both uh, create the um, ability for language professionals to have a debrief partner and to listen to, to language professionals in these types of settings. Right. So kind of jumping backwards a little bit, but then also related to saying no, related to like we were talking about the fight or flight stress response. Is there ever a case where the translator or interpreter's response should be flight? Like, is there ever a case where the, the interpreter should just stop? That response happens on an unconscious level, right? Okay. Response you don't control. And sometimes as interpreters, we freeze. Sometimes um, I have seen people faint. I have uh, actually thrown up in the middle of an assignment. I could not control my, my reaction. It was really gruesome what I was experiencing or, or witnessing. So there are times that happen when we cannot control our, our reaction, and that fight or flight is determined on, on the subconscious level. However, what you can do is when you're feeling the onset of a reaction, you will feel a strong physical something in your stomach, your throat, your temperature change, you're, you're sh maybe shivering, your hands may start shaking. Mm -hmm. This is the time to be naming that emotion, to be right. getting out of the, the body is generating hormones. Mm -hmm. And this is the time of, of getting out of that emotion. So by naming it, you're reducing its effect in the moment. Right, right. So that's when you get into the, into the process. Mm -hmm. Cool. I feel like we've covered the whole gamut from uh, before, during, and after. Are there any other strategies left? There's a lot of strategies that we can do after the assignment. There are a lot of things that we can do. The simplest thing that we can do is the coping strategies. So uh, the simplest thing that we can do is meditation. Right. Meditation or prayer or just uh, mindfulness exercise, and we can do meditation through breathing. We can do meditation through whatever tools and whatever practice people have, but meditation is very, very helpful. Right. And 
it's important to know that we can engage a whole range of coping strategies. We have cognitive coping strategies where we can write things down, we can review our previous successes. One of the easy things is we can write five things we're grateful for. Mm -hmm. It sets us in a positive frame of mind that allows us to be engaged kinesthetically because we're writing, visually, mm -hmm. we're looking at it, auditory because we're hearing in our mind uh, what we're grateful for, and, and just write simple things. I had a great cup of coffee today. I'm grateful for a beautiful sunshine or beautiful sunset. There are things that we can do in a behavioral way, making sure that we reset, we do activities that we enjoy. We take our time to do that work-life balance, even though I find that interpreters rarely have that opportunity. We almost always eat on the go, and the translators almost always end up taking that next assignment. Before, you know, So when yeah. I was break, there are physical coping strategies. Exercise, important to sleep. By the way, we forget that. And when we experience vicarious trauma, or one of the things that goes away and one of the things we lose is sleep. It becomes incredibly difficult to fall asleep. It's important to eat well. It's important to take mini breaks. Then we can do emotional coping strategies, such as naming the emotion. Mm -hmm. And give yourself permission to ask for help. We have spiritual coping strategies we can engage, that is meditation or prayer or finding spiritual support. And then interpersonal coping strategies, such as talking to a debrief partner or just uh, taking time to enjoy company of a trusted friend. So all of this is a whole range of, of strategies we can do. And one more that I'll name that we often forget or take for granted is smiling. Mm -hmm. It's very important. Smiling is contagious, and especially when you smile from the heart. And if you have nobody to smile to, then come up to the mirror and give yourself the biggest smile and tell yourself, I love you. That also has an unbelievable positive effect and actually creates a positive chemical reaction inside your body that counteracts the stress that you've experienced during the day. Super interesting and super difficult, I think, to do all of those things. So why don't we conclude then with like a little mini exercise here, just in case there are any like interpreters listening. Let's talk about the best things about being an interpreter. Like what, what, what do you think are the best, most happiest things about being an interpreter like uh, that they can think about maybe to do some of these exercises? And it's great that you're asking that question because sometimes and, and many times it's a good idea to remind yourself that when you are actually in the middle of an assignment or when, when you're translating or interpreting and in neuro-linguistic programming, this technique is called chunking up, mm -hmm. going up on, on the scale. So it will be different from every single for every single person, right? Mm -hmm. But what I love about being the interpreter is I love connecting people connecting people, and creating understanding. So when I see people's eyes light up because they just are finally heard for the first time or they're being understood or we, uh, through the interpreting, they now can have access to health care or they can now have access to the legal system or they can now have access to help, that makes it all worth it for me. It's just creating those connections and, and building those bridges, for me, is what's most important. That's called chunking up. And NLP, your linguistic programming, it's called chunking it up, going to the next level of why you're doing it. I think that this is the most notes I've ever taken during a podcast episode, by the way, just as a side note. Like, I, I'm writing all this stuff down. It's, it's amazing. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting how people can cope with these extreme levels of stress. And I, I, I mean, just recording the episode, like I, I feel like a lot of this stuff can help me with my regular stress too, actually. It actually does. It helps in interpersonal relationships as well and in just dealing with regular work stress. And we have uh, these steps in a downloadable format on our website at mm -hmm www.masterword.com wellness connection mm -hmm. so you go there www.masterword.com wellness connection and download the steps and 
look at some um, additional tools and, and resources that are, that are listed there. And what's most important is that whatever country we're in, whatever setting we're in, we do raise awareness that interpreters experience this and translators experience this. We do create networks of support. Mm -hmm. We do education around it, and we do help each other, and we do go to – there are a lot of events that happen for, you know, to teach how to meditate or to teach yoga or to teach with mental health, how to cope with mental health issues. So it's very important that we seek help and we give ourselves permission to look for that help. Wow. So I think we can wrap up here, but I, I think it's amazing what you're doing for our interpreters, Ludmila. And I really appreciate this opportunity. And again, translators are affected just as much. The only difference is that the translator can uh, step away from the desk and can look outside the window and right. can a three-minute break in the middle of the assignment, and the interpreter cannot. So the, the translators can use a lot of the same strategies as well, but the interpreters should be able to use the, the tools that I've named while they're in the middle of the battle, so to say. <laughs> right, right. Cool. So we'll, we'll make sure and put the link to the Wellness Connection page on masterword.com. So that way, the, all the listeners can find it on the on the page, and and then they'll be able to click on that link, and they'll find uh, all the information they need, right, to learn about this stuff. I hope so, and uh, I really appreciate this um, opportunity to to share the information. Thank you. Yeah, no, thanks to you, and thanks to all the interpreters out there. Changing lives one assignment at a time, right? That's one right. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, that was another episode of the International Buzz. I was missing Tanya. She's the one who does the good outros. Also, she does the good intros. So, <laughs> so that was another episode. Thanks, Ludmilla. Thank you.